Magic Book Club with Benson's for Beds. Welcome to the Magic Book Club podcast, the podcast where we find out exactly what makes our favourite authors put pen to paper. Or, you know, fingers to keyboard, each to their own. On this episode, we have quite the romance special. First up, we'll be joined by reality TV sweetheart and queen of the jungle from 2017, Georgia Tafolo, to talk all about her brand new book, Meet Me in Hawaii. I have a bone to pick with her about some steamy scenes. And a little bit later on, we'll be chatting with debut author Megan Nolan, hot off the press from her first release, The Utterly Brilliant Acts of Desperation. So sit back, pour yourself a cuppa, spark up that treadmill in the garage as we find out just what makes these authors tick. And off we go. Well, first up, we are joined by Sunday Times bestseller, Queen of the Jungle from 2017, looking a whole lot cleaner than she was at the end of your seven weeks or however long it is in the jungle. Blimey, it's such a long time, isn't it? The gorgeous Georgia Tafilo. How are you, my dear? Oh, I'm so thrilled to be here. God, what a lovely thing to say about me. Thank you so much. <laughs> now, listen, how are you and how has this second lockdown been? I'm I'm judging by the fact that we're talking about your new book, that it has been uh, fairly productive. Yeah, it's been amazing. I mean, we started working on the books about two and a half years ago. And because Meet Me in Hawaii is the second of four, which is completely mind blowing for me. Um, But I spent the lockdown, the first lockdown finishing Meet Me in Hawaii. So in a way, the world turned upside down, but I was really able to get productive because I'm a bit naughty. I get distracted very easily. So the fact that all the pubs and everything was shut (laughs) played right in my favour. (laughs) But no, it's just been amazing. And also just I'm such a lover of literature just outside of obviously my books. And it's been amazing for me to hear there, there's some wonderful statistics that romance fiction has sold better than it ever has done. And it's music to my ears that people are turning to books for respite that we all need. So yeah, it's been a really bizarre year, but a really wonderful one. With My, my first book came out last October. And as you said, a Sunday Times bestseller, which makes me die inside every time I hear it. But um, no, it's just been a really, really, it's been a bizarre year, but a special year for me. Well, congratulations. Well done. I mean, you know, the, to, to launch yourself as, as an author and do so well, it takes some doing. So so congratulations. Um, we, we know this much about you, that you are a, you are a keen bookworm and that you love to read. Um, and um, it, however, has this desire to, to write always been sort of niggling away in the back of your head? Because you've done so much and you've trained and you've got a legal brain and you're a sportswoman and all these kind of things. And in between all that, has it always been just ticking away going at some point I'm going to do this yeah so you put it more eloquently than I ever have done (laughs) that's exactly it I mean I I started writing when I was probably 13 14 but filing it all away it was always just my thing and I did English A level and I absolutely love it and when I started doing television when I was kind of 18 19 I was really young writing was just my private thing and I also it's not it's not like that imposter syndrome but I think it's normal for people to underestimate yourself and yes especially have, women we do it all the time I can't help it and yeah. For years, I mean, I did The Jungle, as you said, in 2017. It was a really crazy time for me, emotionally quite tough, because I went from, you know, Maiden Chelsea, where I was kind of a bit character, no one really bothered about off. And um, I was then sprung into this crazy world of, you know, with millions of followers and lots of people wanting to talk to me. And for me, writing was my escape. But 
I then went to this book launch of a friend of mine and there was a lady who was very high up at Mills and Boone there. And I just, I, I went to the loo and I just thought, if you don't take this chance now, you're never ever going to be this close to anyone that is so important in literature ever again, particularly when, you know, romantic fiction is my bread and butter, but of course no one had ever read anything that I've written. And she said, well, why do you come in for a meeting? And it went on and on and on. And then there was this wonderful idea that, so Mills and Boone is owned by HarperCollins. Yeah. And um, they have this, special thing where they they pair people up with a co-author and that was just a game changer for me because I started kind of flexing my writing muscles a little bit and sending it to um, I mean I've co-written it with four different amazing women and the first lady was like you can actually write and I was like oh no I don't think I can it's all a load of rubbish and she does editing my stuff and that was actually how the first book meet me in London started so yeah it's I couldn't have done it without the co-authors but how amazing for me that I've had an experience working alongside super successful women I mean I hope that we've created something really special Oh, oh my goodness absolutely and and I just wonder as well because it's sometimes you know when you you're sort of clearing out the loft like we've all done during lockdown um and I've discovered um uh school books that my mum had kept of, of stories do you ever go back and read some of those stories that you wrote when you were 13 and 14? Yeah it's so funny you say that so my mum found it was a I think I was only about 14 and it was my English book but at the back yeah turned it over and I was writing all these stories so I was obviously not doing what I was meant to be doing <laughs> and mum sent it up to me last year and she was like you've always been able to write I was like oh god mum so cringe <laughs> mums are just like that <laughs> totally proud exactly I'm going to keep the story where you tell it will you tell yeah. everybody about going to the farm and what you did at the weekend yeah. but there is something so special I'm quite traditional and I write to all of my friends and I'm a real sucker for a thank you note and they go on for pages yeah. and pages but the paper trail I just hope that we will keep and cherish because you know so many things are online yeah I just think there's something really special about actually holding something tangible absolutely Um, I date everything as well dating things is really important because you always forget when you wrote something always well it's it's increasingly difficult to remember when you did everything because anything during lockdown because you always remember things in the context of of other stuff and when there's nothing going on you look back and go I've no idea when I did that I've literally no idea have you felt that the time is whizzing by so quickly which yes. I'm thrilled about because I'm just dying to go and you know have a bit of fun now but I've just the weeks are whizzing and it's amazing it is indeed it is it is now listen I want to talk to you about why romance novels you sort of briefly skimmed over it there that you know you you were obviously you knew about Mills and Boone and and you're I mean we've never we've never met I don't know you personally but what I know about you is that there's you know there is this huge imagination this great use of words and um and you are quite a romantic type of individual is it is it was it was that a no-brainer that it was always going to be romance novels I think it had to be because well I mentioned I wasn't as confident as I would have liked to have been and because my outlet has always been reading romantic fiction I think my first venture into that world had to be that and I think perhaps the other thing I made a decision a few years ago to quite a tricky one because I'm quite an open public person like I'm not shy (laughs) Um, no you're not (laughs) I'm really not and I love sharing every detail of my life with everyone and I have done since I was 18 so I had to kind of take a step back and think about, you know, how that might affect the people around me. And I made quite a hard decision to not speak about my public 
romances. Um, it was about two and a half, three years ago. Yes. And I really wanted to protect myself because, you know, stuff happens that you don't want to happen. Like you get dumped or someone <laughs> cheats on you. And I could not imagine myself for, I hope I do what I do forever. And yeah. I think for me to be able to do that and feel emotionally equipped to do that, I had to keep something back. So I wonder whether these books that are just full to the brim of love and there's a bit of sex in them as well just a little we will come on to that in a minute (laughs) young lady (laughs) yes a bit naughty but they're not you know too naughty but I wonder whether I have used these books to kind of broadcast to people that love is amazing and I love love even though I don't shout (laughs) on rooftops about it but to be honest I want to (laughs) the thing is is when you speak about it like that it is of no surprise at all that romantic fiction has flown during lockdown because we all need that escape Escapism. I don't want to read. I just, I have picked up several books where I've just gone, oh, I can't do this now. Nothing to, I just need to get on with it and have a little bit of fun with it. And it's, it is escapism. And, um, and I mean, meet me in London obviously based in the capital and Hawaii we've got beaches and sunshine and waves and, 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 and chirping frogs. Oh yeah. All of that. Have you been to Hawaii? No, I'm dying to go. This is why it had to be in Hawaii, because I didn't take a gap year and I didn't travel. And because I've just been working the whole time, which really is an amazing thing, um, I never got to go to Hawaii. So it was top of the list. But we have also been incredibly lucky that I think so many people, I know I am, I'm dying to go away. (laughs) And, you know, (laughs) meet me in Hawaii is armchair travel. So, you know, it's been a wonderful coincidence that, you know, Boris hasn't allowed us to travel and the book's coming out. (laughs) You're going to lose your mind when you actually are on a beach in Hawaii and you hear those frogs. You're going to be like, I know, I keep on saying it. Can you imagine the feeling of me leaving that airport? And I mean, we have been working this book for over a year. And I mean, I feel like I know Hawaii, like the back of my hand. I mean, Google (laughs) Earth is my friend. But that feeling, if I was to ever get there, which I know I will this year, I really, really pray, leaving the airport and hearing the sounds and smelling the smells that I've written about in the book, be really special. Tell me about Mally then. Where did she come from? Because even though that there is there there is uh, this this beautiful language and romantic descriptive language, there are some lines that she delivers in in very typical Georgia way. Shut yeah. that down. Stop being daft. Get on with it. Um, it had to be so because. So but just so just a quick top line. So the, the four books all centralise on a different girlie. So there are four girls who are best friends from Devon, like me. And each book centralises in one of them. So the first one was Victoria. The second one, as you say, is Mally. And I really wanted it to come across right from the first chapter that Mally is quite small and mighty, which I really love. <laughs> and I wanted to also dispel any silly myths that Mills and Boone was sort of a fantasy where men make women happy. And it was all, I just wanted to challenge it because that isn't the case. But I oh. think it needed, I really wanted to set the record straight. So the first chapter, um, Mally saves a chap from drowning. Now, <laughs> it's normally the other way around, isn't it? So I yes. thought, let's just set the tone straight away. And she actually, it isn't the kind of stereotypical fairy tale because Mally thinks and feels so strongly that she's so independent Mm. that fine this gorgeous handsome man has come in front of her and wanted to whisk her off her feet but she's resisting she's like I've got my thing going on she runs a surf school and she's just so 
she's aesthetically very beautiful, but inside she's got some morals that I think are really, really special and lots yeah. of people should have. Um, but I love that we were able to really write throughout the whole book that she basically told him to do yeah. the whole way through. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy for her to resist his wily charms though it isn't it isn't easy for her I'm thinking as well being I mean we know uh you played a lot of tennis as a kid growing up in Devon did you surf no this is the thing but I know the reason why I felt so strongly about it is because I have projected a lot of characteristics and talents into my girls that I just yes. don't possess and I know that I've done it subconsciously because I went to school. So I grew up on the south coast of Devon in Torbay, but I went to school in mid-Devon and a really good friend of mine owns a surf school on the north coast. And every time I would go and stay with him, I would look at all of these gorgeous girlies and blokes getting in the water. Now, if anyone has gone for a dip in North Devon, it's so cold. And I am such a snowflake. I was just like, I'm having none of it. But I think I've just soaked all of it up and thought how amazing that they do get in and do that. Yeah, Whereas yeah, I just yeah. With you know an ice cream and a bacon sarnie, and that's me done. You know, <laughs> you know I didn't. I um, we have something in common. Mm. We have both danced in timepiece. Oh my god, you're a timepiece legend. I can't believe you are a timepiece legend. Wow, I'm a timepiece legend. I was because I went to university in Exeter, so we that's yeah amazing. we used to go to timepiece. I was like, oh my gosh, yes, we both danced in timepiece. There is something that I wonder that the university students do miss out on, and I yes. it. It's Christmas timepiece. You know, it snows in there. It snows in the nightclub. I have heard, but I have never experienced Christmas in timepiece. I haven't thought about timepiece enough recently. I think timepiece might have to be the first night out I go to because not only is it the best dance floor in the whole of the UK, you can go downstairs and get a burger afterwards. You don't even have to go to a burger van, it's just downstairs. (laughs) (laughs) It's so cool. Now, listen, we're talking to you sitting at a desk. Is it the desk that you write at? Because we always like to find out about our authors and and how they write and and, and what you need around you in order to be as creative as you are. Set the scene. How do you write? Um, I would like to say that I love sitting in a really chic coffee shop in Chelsea and like all of that. If there is anyone around me, I am like a naughty little fly. I'm like, oh, what's that? What are you talking about? Has to be dead silent. The dog has to even be asleep because he is the biggest distraction. Yes. And I sit here and I hammer it out. And it's a strange thing. I like being very warm when I'm when I'm doing my writing. So I've got a little fan here. Um, I always have my little fan on. It, I don't know why I hate being cold. So whenever I'm really having a big writing day, my structure is great because I've got so many different things going on. Um, when the books, I mean, when we're close to deadline, I'm not going to lie and say I do it every day, but when the deadline's looming, I do. I get up really early. I'm a bit of an early bird. So I'll do seven until 10. Okay. Um, and then I'll get on with my other bits. But no, I, I, I've always liked the idea of being some chic woman who saunters around with her mat book and it's just not me I have to plant myself at home (laughs) now listen I want to have a chat about because uh there is some steam in these books there are some incredible kisses in these books so I guess the next question is akin to asking actors about the intimate scenes that they write uh, that they act when you are writing intimate come on now we're all girls I won't tell anybody when and can I thank you uh, I'm a woman of a certain age and my love life Georgia is not what it used to be in the first throws of uh when in my mid-20s they know the pandemic um, darling so 
quite literally, it's been a pleasure. Um, <laughs> so tell me what you what what goes through your mind? Do you have to go and have a cold shower afterwards? Do you have to plan these out? Do you have to reenact them with a pillow? How do you how do you write the difficult steamy scenes? They're brilliant, by the way. Oh gosh, thank you so much. I'm going <laughs> to be really honest with you. As a Mills and Boone author, I probably should say that they flow really freely. Yes. I don't. Now, I'm not a prude. I'm kind of the opposite. But putting pen to paper about it, it's a slow process. And yes. I have giggles every time. I've had numerous meetings about what you call the you-know-whats. Um, and <laughs> it's just one of those things that you have to just do it bit by bit. But the problem is when you write something and you reference it back, you're like, oh, God, that is so cringe. Like, I can't. And then I read it back and I'm like, no, that's what I would like to read in a sexy. I mean, there's no, like, proper bonking in there. Yeah. It's like... You know, it's not, it's not heavy. <laughs> you are so old school. That's the first time I've heard that word bonking for ages. I love a good bonk. Oh, dear. But no, I struggle with it ever so slightly, but it's so important that we do because the sexual tension throughout my book, it goes on so much and it reaches this massive crescendo and it would be a travesty if we didn't have a bit of it in there. Oh my goodness me, and of it's course. It's the sort of like my grandmother reading it or like my mum, it's just a bit, <laughs> but I'm sure they I'd absolutely will love it, but it's not addressed. I think they get to the crashing waves and know what's coming and maybe so we'll <laughs> skip that chapter. Yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, and during COVID too, this, this could be, uh, one of the first Zoom novels. Do you see this? Do you see these on the screen? Because they are very, um, there's some really dramatic landscapes and the plots are just lend themselves so, so easily to, to TV and the big screen. Now, of course, you will. I will always play my own trumpet and be like, my book needs to be made into a film, of course. I mean, wouldn't that be the dream? Yes. I always think that, because Todd is quite, he's not the stereotypical hero. He's very handsome, but he's quite vampy. And I think, you know, the juxtaposition of him, the, Br the Brit, the South Londoner being in Hawaii is just quite fun and he's really pale. And I always picture him as like Robert Patterson, you know, like <gasps> vampire vibes. Um, and I always think about Mally because she's just, you need someone who's so beautiful inside and out. And I think the values of whoever could play her really have to align with her as a person, but also they've got to learn how to surf or know how to surf. So who do we I, know that surfs? I was thinking Margot Robbie because she's Australian, but that might be real, you know, when you put everyone with the same brush, she might never have been surfing. She might just be a Nazi. <laughs> it's it's but, worth a phone call, babe. It's worth a phone call for sure. <laughs> well, apparently she used to live in, um, she used to live in a house share in Clapham. And okay. I, have you heard of Bunga Bunga? It's just like karaoke yes. place. It's classic. My, my friends and I were in there. Apparently she was in there on the same night. So I probably should have approached her. But how amazing is that? Like what A-list celebrity lives in a house share in Clapham? And that goes to the same places as I do and sings like really bad karaoke, like what a legend. <laughs> That's subconsciously obviously what I put in the back of my mind. That's why I want her to play her. <laughs> I think this is this is easily done. I think this is easily done. Um, listen, so we've got Meet Me in Hawaii. We've had Meet Me in London. The two others, can we can we know what they are called? Yeah, I can tell you the third book. So it's Meet Me in Tahiti. We go off to Tahiti, which is really exciting. And I was so thrilled that we were able to shoehorn the first two chapters of Tahiti into the back of Meet Me in Hawaii. So the story continues a bit. And then the last book I'm not allowed to say, but all I can say, what can I say? We're going home. That's what I'm saying. Okay. That's quite a big clue. <laughs> Meet me on the beach in Devon. I'm not telling you. <laughs>
<laughs> Meet me in Torbay. Excellent. <laughs> God, my mother would be thrilled. God, <laughs> meet me in Torbay. Um, listen, um, you're a joy as always. It's lovely to speak to you. Um, thank you for um, thank you for your book and making me smile. Um, and uh, you take care. All the best. It's lovely to speak to you. Thank you, darling. Take care, baby. Bye-bye. It really is a fantastic bit of armchair travel. Meet Me in Hawaii is out now. Joining us now is a fabulous young writer and a brilliant mind behind the acclaimed new novel, Acts of Desperation. It's Megan Nolan. Megan, great to have you on the Magic Book Club podcast. How are you? Are you feeling the positive vibes of, of a positive 2021? I am yeah it was all quite hard to take in while it was happening the week of publication um and I was so busy trying to get uh you know all the interviews and little bits and jobs done that I couldn't quite absorb how great it all was and then last week and the week before I had time to just sit back and and read everything and it's been an amazing feeling obviously it was such a long time coming um that I was working on the book so it's, it's an incredible feeling um talking of which Sarah Jessica Parker has your acts of death I was just saying to my mum last night because uh, we used to watch it together when I was the, when I was a teenager. And I was just thinking, oh my god, if I could tell fifteen year old Megan that this has happened, she would be screaming so much. Fifteen year old Megan Carrie Bradshaw is reading your book. <laughs> it's so cool. I was very jealous of that. I was like, that that's that's a moment. That's definitely a moment. Yeah. Um, in this time, then the last year where everybody has had a real time to kind of be a little bit more introverted, a little bit more inward looking, um, releasing something so personal, like a debut novel and a novel of, of this kind, which is which is challenging and passionate and desperate. Um, how did that how did that feel to you um, uh, when, when you let it go, when you let your baby out into this strange world that we find ourselves in at the moment? Yeah, it was. Um, so so it, the timeline was a bit funny, actually, because I, I only I only um, ended up doing the final edits and adding in some scenes that, that ended up in the book while while in the first lockdown in ah. Ireland, um, because I was I'd been in New York for a few. I was meant to be there for a couple of months, just seeing friends and hanging out with people and doing some work. And then COVID started. So I flew home to Ireland. And uh, that's where I finished off the last edits of the book and added, yeah, so added in some new scenes as well. So that was sort of a funny feeling. It was it was good in a way because while I was in New York, I was thinking, oh my God, it's so much fun here. I'm having the best social life ever. So I can't really imagine I'm going to sit down and finish this book maybe. <laughs> um, so yeah, I had that in, in the first lockdown to concentrate on. And then since then... I've been really unproductive, but so it's been really great to have the book in the background, you know, as some sort of solid proof that I'd have ever done some work. Um, so Look. that was, that was good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I have to say as well, um, and you, you know, we just mentioned it there. It's been received with great praise. It really has. The Guardian's called it a fierce novel of obsessive love. The Evening Standard says you have a disarmingly distinctive voice. Uh, lots of comparisons to Sally Rooney's work, which has got to be a good thing. I, I often ask this if I'm interviewing um, pop stars, musicians. Is there Was there a moment when you were writing for them a song or for you this book that you kind of go you know I think this is quite good no not at all no in no way no <laughs> <laughs> um no I've really I've really relied on on my agent Harriet she's a really good friend of mine because she was with me the whole process and I just have no distance from my own work at all and, and if, if I'd been left for my own devices I honestly would not have finished it and I would have thrown away anything that I had produced because I I had such little confidence in it um 
while it was while it was being put together. And then even when we finished it, I mean, I, I thought I thought it was probably good, but I, I, I didn't really know, you know, the whims of the industry. You have no yes. idea. So I just had no I really had no clue. I thought maybe it, maybe it would end up getting published by, say, like a, a very, very small press or maybe like with an art gallery or something like that. But um, but no, I was totally taken aback by everything that happened. And are you the type of person where that price sits easily and you could sort of appreciate your work or do you kind of fight it a little bit and go, no, not me, really? <laughs> um, I'm trying to get better at accepting. And my, my dad is um, very con- concerned with like making sure that I try and hear it fully. Um, so like if I'm having a bad day or there is a bad review or there's some negative comment or whatever, he'll always just send me a sort of, you know, bombard me with every good thing that's ever been said about it in one go. Um, <laughs> nice dad. He's a great dad, yeah. But yeah, I think I definitely have the thing that a lot of people and especially, you know, neurotic, anxious um, people who create things for the public have, which is that you can just sort of skim over a hundred really nice comments, then you see one and that ruins your day then, which I'm trying to get past, but it's a hard one. Oh my goodness me, I, I'm exactly the same. It just takes one little text to come in from a listener to say, Yeah, I bet. Oh, totally SHIT, get off my airwaves. And I'm like, that's it, my life is ruined. <laughs> um, that may explain the next question, actually. So we were chatting to, it's a bit of a romance special podcast this uh, this month. And we were chatting to Georgia Tofolo, who wrote, a ve- yeah. she, she writes a very hopeful, sparkly Mills and Boom version of romance. Yeah. Uh, what you've just said may explain what drew you to very much at the other end of the spectrum uh, a much more explosive and raw version of love and sometimes well for our protagonist in acts of desperation it's obsessive and dangerous love yes um yeah I think the reason that I was drawn to it was that I have it it's not that I'd only had negative experiences with love in fact quite the opposite you know like for for a lot of my teenage years and some of my early 20s I had I had really wonderful boyfriends and really um, you know just unique magical relationships that I still think about really fondly now but um, I think maybe almost as a result of having those formative really positive experiences I just sort of prioritized relationships and rom- romance in my life to a really extreme degree I think where everything else only mattered you know secondarily to to the relationship I was in including my work my friends what I you know where I was living everything really um, and I think that impulse did lead me into then in my in my later 20s or in my kind of early to mid 20s into bad situations where I was accepting a lot of um, less than ideal behavior and and putting myself into situations that I really didn't need to be in and it was from that sort of experience that I was drawing on for acts of desperation. It's interesting because you talk about that impulse and uh, and I wonder whether or not you've had conversations in your head about um, that for women very much our impulse is to look outward for confirmation from wherever it's something that it kind of it we just do automatically um, uh, and you know you carry that to its natural conclusion and you very much get to where the young lady is in your book gets to. Yeah for sure I think that I mean, it, it definitely doesn't, as you say, it doesn't come naturally to us to draw on our own resources. And we're not really taught to do that, I don't think. You know, we're taught from a very young age that, um, I mean, way before we're sexual or even have crushes that that we're looked at and that we're, you know, that we're all value if we're providing a, a pleasant appearance to people and, you know, a sort of benign demeanor to people. Um, so I think having absorbed that for most of your life, it's not an easy switch, even when you logically realize that it's not a wise tactic to get your self-worth from outside. 
you, you know, I, I think I would have known that and been able to say it clearly to you in my early 20s when I still was behaving yeah. this way. Um, but it's obviously just not something that comes intuitively to you. Um, and yeah, I think that's a lot of what I was sort of processing myself, even as I was writing the novel, I was kind of coming out of that, those, those sorts of situations. And, and I think writing the novel was one way for me to, to sort of put down an extreme version of the feelings I had been having and, and, and play them yeah. out to their full, to their full conclusion. It was really interesting because I think, as, where is it? It's um, uh, sort of halfway through when when she moves in with Kieran yeah. uh, for the first time. And there's that just that sort of meandering thought process of how did we work out that I was going to cook and you were going to do that? Yeah. And, 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 and whilst the vast majority of us, thankfully, don't find ourselves in the situation that your protagonist does, um, I mean, that's every woman. That's every woman that's kind of just gone, hang on a minute, how did I, how did I, why am I doing, and particularly in lockdown where women have felt, um, you know, they've really felt the, the harsh end of lockdown in terms of childcare and, and provision yeah. and keeping things going in the family and the frontline workers. And, you know, it's that, how have I, and that really yeah. rang a bell with me. It really rang a bell. I don't know how people do it because when I when I had um, when I have lived with a partner, it was when we had no real responsibilities outside of each other. So even though you know those things did crop up, it was it was it was more or less manageable. I can't understand how people deal with that dynamic when they also have children and and really hardcore careers to work with as well. I saw something on Twitter the other day where a woman had. Um, had just as you know, as an experiment, had stopped cleaning up to see what would happen, and uh, and everything, everything for days on end. You know, I think it was like five days before the people, before her family had begun to clean up for her, for themselves, I should say, not for her. Um, yeah. And I just thought, oh my god, I actually my tolerance has gotten so low now because I've lived alone for a while that I don't, I don't know how I would respond to that. <laughs> It's really funny. There is, I'm reading uh, Glennon Doyle's Untamed at the moment. And this is like the kind of, you know, the sort of therapy version of acts of desperation. Right. And she said, and she mentions that, you know, there's this, there's this extract where uh, her a husband, her wife goes out and leaves the husband in charge for the day and leaves, leaves him a list of things to do. And she says, well, hang on a minute. Like, when did we get to that point? When did we yeah. get to that point that this, this grown man can't do that themselves? Anyway, that's another conversation. Let's <laughs> get to your protagonist because uh, your protagonist with no name which is yeah. hugely significant um uh, there are some really high emotional stakes that we've mentioned um and uh she has some terrible ordeals some of which um i'm sure could have been avoided some of which she seeks some of which she can't help um but they're very difficult scenes and it culminates in a very violent sexual scene um that i can't imagine um that was lightly approached no I and I didn't um I didn't quite know that it would end in that way when when I began it because sure. uh, I, I had actually so the, the, the way that I, I wrote the book was that I, I actually wrote the, the very final um the the sort of final section which is set in Athens I had written first before anything else and then and then I worked backwards from there uh you know I went back to the start and, and began there but um yeah I didn't I knew that it had to end in some way that that wasn't just a normal breakup and, and it had to be something scarring for her to to um kind of to, to force her out of of the of this need of hers to be in relationships like that yeah um so I knew something needed to happen but then that just sort of came up organically as I was working but yeah no it wasn't easy it was um you know when you're writing these things and it's not that I think they don't have any value but you're when you're writing something ugly it, it's an ugly feeling as well to be to be creating it so um 
you don't step away from the desk feeling great after writing that you know what I mean even even apart from your own emotions it's also just a bit um it's a bit um, ambiv- ambivalent for me to to put something ugly into the world, you know. Yeah, yeah, completely. I, and I just, you know, I was wanted to know. Do you have to? It's like I'm, I'm sure it happens with actors all the times when when actors do difficult scenes together, they sort of have to demo- emotionally derig. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there must be such a sense of responsibility, you know, person coming away from a scene like that, personally, you know, sort of finding your balance again and being responsible for sending that out into the world. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's funny. Someone someone asked me uh, at a at an event just after the launch lately um, what I thought about trigger warnings for novels, and genuinely, I'd never I'd never ever thought of it before. Wow. Um, and it just uh, you know, it's not something I had a stance on, and it's not even something I, I necessarily have a stance on now. Although we did have kind of an interesting conversation where. Um, because it's not that I think it's it's wrong to do that. It's just that I wouldn't want it, and you know, for, for my as in as a reader, I wouldn't want it. Um, my personal traumas or ordeals or whatever you want to call them um I don't happen to experience culture in that way where I need where I need those warnings but I want other people to have them so we had had this conversation about the possibility of um maybe having like a place a designated place in the jacket where they would be if you wanted to to look for them yeah um so yeah we just had this quite that it had a quite a good discussion about it and it it did make me think about my own book because to be honest with you given that we didn't have any book deal while I was writing it I really was not thinking about the, the anticipated response to it um which was good because it let me write those things you know in a way that wasn't um too cautious but it did mean that when it was being sent out um as in you know once it had been pu- published into a proof and and people were really reading it that was the moment where I thought oh my god I hope I don't really you know ruin someone's day with, with some of the things in this book Oh, it's Megan honestly the I think the your language your use of language the way it's written is so unbelievably refreshing that even with the difficult even with the difficult uh scenes the difficult chapters you it's masterfully delivered and it's been such a delight to read and you know really I mean you know I wouldn't expect to say a delight but you know because it's yeah but it is um so you when you uh, first I'm gonna ask a little bit about um your your writing because mm-hmm. You, you you know this is this is a debut novel but you're no stranger to writing you've written for the new york times the guardian um has have you always been writing stories um have you always been writing opinion or was was fiction there as a kid for you yeah i'd always um always been writing stories and actually po- poetry was my main thing for for a long time um when i was a child and teenager and young adult it was mainly poetry that i was focused on um but also some some fictional stories. The journalism stuff kind of came because um, I moved to Dublin when I was eighteen, and I knew I wanted to have something to do with writing. But obviously, you know, there's no there's no like obvious into poetry and fiction as an eighteen year old with no with no real backing um, or whatever you want to call it. But um, so there was um, uh, you know one of these like free sheet event guides. Yeah, yeah. I just I just started to do uh, film reviews for them, and that was sort of the first journalistic thing I did. Um, but it wasn't, to be honest, it wasn't a big dream of mine to be a journalist whatsoever. Um, it wasn't really something I saw as a career you could make money from. Like where, what, when I was doing it, it was just something in my very much, very much my spare time as a, as a teenager in Dublin. Um, but I think it, I, so to answer your question, sorry, I, I, I did write for most of my life, but I had quite a, a, a weird gap then when, when I did go to Dublin and some, things sort of went off the rails for me and I didn't really write in any serious way for a couple of years then 
Um, and by the time I started back, I was starting to play with the essay form that I sort of continue with to, to this day. Um, of course, we have to say as well, because of the, the comparisons to Sally Rooney and the success of her TV adaptation of Normal People, is it, is, it, is it a little germ of hope that this might make the small screen? Has it had, have you got any, you know, have you thought about this making the small screen or the big screen even? Uh, no, I mean, I don't, um, <laughs> in, in the way to do with what we talked about earlier, in a sort of self-protective way, I don't really ever like try and think about something good that might happen to me until that's <laughs> happening. <laughs> so like, well, I'm, I'm very grateful because everyone that, you know, works at the agency that I'm signed to is very um, dynamic and, you know, clever and they'll, they'll do anything that they can do in that regard. So I'll let, I'll let them at it and, you know, talk to them if it happens. But for the moment, I'm happy, you know one step at a time hey yeah uh, listen um whatever i i'm I mean, in that kind of answers the question which was is there is there is there anything in the pipeline that you can tell us about but for them i mean for the minute i'm really enjoying this book it's absolutely fantastic so whatever comes next from you I, i'm sure it will be amazing yeah there's a second novel so when i signed to jonathan cape it was for two books so i'm in the middle of um working on that one at the moment and i will i will be for the next um couple of months or maybe the rest of the year uh, so yeah that will be that will be the it's a very different sort of sort of enterprise than active desperation because it's you know with act it's all um, one interior monologue it's one person's perspective so even just doing getting out of that format it's been it's it's been really fun actually because it's a new way of writing for me so I've been enjoying it a lot uh Megan and of course a real toast to Dublin as well and there's so much of Dublin's character in the book as well I'm sure it yeah. must have been really really nice for you to to be able to put that in there um it's lovely to speak to you thank you so much for coming on the uh, the book club podcast I I really enjoyed it absolutely fantastic um and I can't wait to see what you do next oh thank you so much my pleasure to be on thank you it's absolutely an astonishing read. It really is. And that, sadly, is all we've got time for on the Magic Book Club podcast. Join us next time for more fantastic books. In the meantime, head to magic.co.uk to see the rest of our picks and join the club. And of course, happy reading. Happy reading.